Happy springtime to you. <clears throat> Just about the time you can see where you're going out there, they switched the clock on us. I saw a couple of people coming into church around noontime last Sunday. Boy, they sure were on the ball. I had, an, I had an elder one time years ago. He didn't set his clock and came to church and got there about 10 till noon. And he just stood at the outside door shaking everybody's hand, telling them what a wonderful service it was. I think it was the best one he had had in weeks. Loved the sermon. It was his favorite sermon. Didn't hear it. Guys, we are in the last book of the Minor Prophets. Let's give a hand for the Minor Prophets. Yay! All right. We're going to slow down and uh, really go through this one, as we said. A lot of our studies have been just uh, biblical drive-bys. We've hardly had time to study it. Malachi, we're going to be able to go a little uh, more slowly, and I think actually call it a Bible study. Uh, but the reason is not only so that we'll have at least one Bible study in the Minor Prophets, but because uh, there's a lot going on in this, this book, which is very, very important to us. If you'll take uh, your, your Bibles, your study Bibles that you've got there, and turn back to page uh, 10... Uh, 64, and look again at this series of prophets and the dating. Uh, you'll notice there are three general periods that are uh, referred to here. And this, these would be the, the minor and major prophets in the Bible. This doesn't include um, Elijah and Elisha and so on. But if you, we notice that Amos was probably the earliest. Joel, we don't know. It could be the earliest. But you have the Assyrian period, the Babylonian judgment, the restoration. We saw during the Assyrian period that these prophets predicted the Assyrians were going to take away the northern kingdom, which they did in 722 B.C. And then during the Babylonian period, the prophets were warning about Babylon and also telling of God's judgment on Babylon as well as Assyria. Then remember when we picked up with Haggai in 520. Now notice that date. 520. The temple is almost complete. The temple is completed in 516. So you remember that both Haggai and Zechariah that we just finished were uh, prophecies given to Israel during the time of the completion of the temple. Haggai, you remember, was to prompt them to get back going on the temple. They had laid the work aside. had gotten discouraged. And Zechariah had other things to say to them, but it was during this same period. And now look at Malachi, how much later he is. He is 62 years later. So the temple has already been completed. And this is 60 years after the temple is completed. And I want to show you another chart in your study Bibles that will help you put this date in perspective. But, but look there, Malachi is the last one. Joel's listed last year just because we don't know about Joel, but Malachi is the last word before the coming of Christ, 458 years or 454 years later. So this is the last word out of the Old Testament. But notice that date, uh, 458. Now, continue to turn back to page 697 in your study Bible. And you can see here a, a historical chart of some things going on here. You notice that Persia captured Babylon in 539 and Cyrus, the Persian leader, remember, enabled the Israelites to go back to Babylon to rebuild the temple. And that was probably around 537. And in 537, they actually rebuild the altar. And you go all the way down to 520, and you can see the work on the temple is renewed under Darius. That was, and then, of course, you know, in 520, right there, Haggai, Zechariah are prophesying. 516, the temple is completed. Now, the next date you see there is 458. And that's when Ezra departs from Babylon in April of that year, and he arrives in August of that year, 458. Now, the reason that most people believe that Malachi was written in 458, the same year that Ezra arrives and gathers the people you'll see there in December. See that people assemble in December of that year and they begin an investigation and so on. The reason people believe Malachi was written in 458 is because when Ezra preaches, 
about some of the same issues that Malachi is talking about, there's immediate repentance. And most people say, that doesn't look like Israel. <laughs> Immediately repent. And folks, most scholars say uh, that the reason they repented immediately is they had been prepared by the prophet Malachi. He had been preaching, he had been railing at them for months about these same issues. These are the issues we're going to look at. So that when Ezra comes along then from Babylon, then the people are ready to repent. Now, to add to the story, you look on down another 14 years, and you'll see in 444 that Nehemiah approaches the king in Babylon and then travels to Jerusalem later that year, and then he builds the wall, you notice there, by October of 444. So where we are historically is the people have come back from Babylon a hundred years before, and they continue to come back. Some of them are still in Babylon. Nehemiah was in Babylon. So some are still in Babylon. But a hundred years ago, people started coming back. The temple got built, was completed in 516, which is a significant date because it was 70 years later, as Daniel had predicted, 70 years of exile. So 516, 70 years after 586, when they were taken into captivity, 516, the temple was rebuilt. Another 60 years later, you have Ezra coming over. But right before that, there's a prophet to get the people prepared to repent when Ezra comes. Ezra's a priest and a teacher. And uh, then 14 years later, Nehemiah comes and builds the wall. So you see, the wall was built after the temple was built. Significantly after the temple was built. Almost 80 years after the temple was built. So now turn back in your Bibles to page 1527, where we are with Malachi. And this... Letter is extremely important because it is God's last word before the coming of His Son. It's also important because it addresses so many issues of contemporary relevance, as we shall see. One of you said this morning, I know why you're excited about Malachi, because it talks about tithing. (laughs) I've been waiting 11 years to talk to you about tithing. And we will talk about it. And if this room, if the attendance goes down, you're a bunch of cheapskates, is all I can say. <laughs> we'll get to that. Because that's an important part of God's covenant with us. And this word covenant is extremely important to Malachi. Of all the minor prophets, Malachi overwhelmingly uses the word covenant more times than they. In fact, I, if I remember correctly, he probably uses the word covenant more than all the usages in all the minor prophets. He uses it seven times. Now, he uses it in some unusual ways, like the covenant of Levi. What in the world is that? Well, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But he uses the word covenant a lot. And what he's saying is that our relationship with God is basically a covenant relationship. And as modern American Christians... We don't often describe our relationship with God in terms of a covenant, but that's exactly what it is. When Jesus gave us the Last Supper, which we'll celebrate next week, you know, Monday, Thursday, when he instituted the Last Supper for his disciples, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The word covenant is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. The word berit in the Hebrew or diatheke in Greek uh, and Jesus lifted up the cup and said, this is a new covenant in my blood. That is, our relationship with God is a covenant sealed by the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That covenant is made by God with us. It's a promise by him. And we're bound by oath in a relationship, a covenant relationship. You'll see that when Malachi talks about marriage, which is another reason this book is so important, It's one of the clearest teachings in the Old Testament about dating, marriage, divorce, and so on. And when he speaks about it, he speaks about marriage as a marriage covenant. He uses the same word, berit. And what he's basically saying is, don't you understand your relationship with God is like marriage? You've sworn oaths to each other. And in the case of our relationship with God, it is sealed by blood. In the Old Testament, the blood of the animals, which were pointing forward to the blood of Jesus Christ, which would finally seal the covenant. So we're in this 
relationship where we're bound to him. We're united to him in solemn oath and covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, talk about a relationship. This is tight. Now, Malachi's basic complaint is that we're in this marriage and we ain't acting too good. Uh, Our bridegroom is acting very well. That's God. We're the bride and we're really misbehaving. And he's calling us back to covenant life. What does it mean to live out a covenant relationship with God? That's Malachi's great concern. And he touches on some issues that are of great relevance to us. Now, the, uh, let's just begin. I, I, another reason I love Malachi is the way he begins. And uh, we're going to see that he begins exactly where we need to begin today. In answering the question, how am I going to live out a real relationship with the one who made me? If I've been made by God, and you have, every single one of you, been made by God. He designed you. He created you. And if He created you, He has creator's rights over you. How do you live in light of that? Well, well, the covenant shows you how to do it. So Malachi's task is to do that. And he starts exactly where we need to start. And let's look at the first point of our study. We're only looking at, at five verses today. Um, praise the Lord, instead of five chapters. Uh, ver- first verse. Well, let's just read it. Let's read these five verses. An oracle... The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. All right. First verse, we notice this, that a covenant fellowship or covenant relationship with God begins with an oracle from God. Relationship with God begins with God talking. God speaks, and then we have the possibility of a relationship. Everything starts with God's voice. And the Bible is God's voice. And our relationship starts with Him. This is the reason the Bible is so important. It's not just a bunch of Bible-thumping fundamentalists who care about this. It's people who want to have an intimate relationship with God. How do you have one unless He directs the relationship, reveals Himself to us in a reliable manner? And in the Bible, he has revealed himself to us. He starts the relationship. He is high and lofty, and that's the only way we're going to have one. I can't have a relationship with George Bush unless he calls me. I can try all I want to to call him, and I'll never get through. But if he calls me, I might consider it. He can get through in a moment. He can interrupt this Bible study and take anyone else out of here if he calls. So if he reveals himself, if he shows he wants to have a relationship with us, he can do it. He just needs to speak. Well, if it's true with George Bush, how much more true is it with the president? He's got to take the initiative. That's exactly what he does. So it begins with his voice. Now, notice, first of all, an oracle is the word of the Lord. He says, an oracle, the word of the Lord. And it's the word of the Lord to Israel. And it's the word of the Lord through a prophet. Now, in Malachi... One of the very special things about this book is that 47 out of 55 verses are direct quotes from the Lord. 55 verses, 47 of them are the Lord talking. This is very unusual, even in a prophecy. So Malachi is truly, the word Malachi just means my, the word, the little letter I means my, that's the pronoun my. And Malach means messenger. So my messenger. Some people have suggested that Malachi uh, was not even the name of the prophet. The Lord is just simply saying an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through my messenger. That's possible. But, uh, but on the other hand, I, really, I, I personally believe that Malachi was the name of the prophet. Uh, but he is speaking through a person to his people. And the voice of the Lord does come to his people. When it goes to the other nations, how does it go to the other nations? Through his people to the other nations. That's the reason that missions is so important for the church. 
If God is speaking to the world, he'll speak through his people to the world. And then in the world, they become his people. And then they begin to speak to the rest of the world. Then they become his people. And they begin to speak to the rest of the world. That's the way the Lord does it. So the Lord, his voice is to his people through this messenger. And as we've seen, what we're going to understand is that we're the prophets in this age. We're the prophets to this world. And God is still speaking through his prophets, through his messengers to the world. And that is ourselves. Malachi was faithful to communicate this message to us. An oracle is the word of the Lord. Notice also, you wouldn't pick this up in the text, but the very word oracle can mean burden. Now, we saw this once before. There are about three instances where this word is used. One of them is in Zechariah, where he uses the word burden to speak of oracle. Now, why is it a burden? First of all, because it is the word of God. And the word of God is heavy. Uh, the word glory in Hebrews kavod, it just means heavy. God is glorious. He's heavy. His word is heavy. So anytime you sense the word of God, there's a heaviness or a weight or a significance, a, a moment, an import to the word of God. Secondly, it's a burden because it must be preached. For example, in Amos 3.8, here's what Amos says. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So if the Lord has spoken, which means you have his word in your heart, who can keep his mouth shut? When you try to keep your mouth shut, you end up feeling like Jeremiah did in chapter 20, where Jeremiah says, uh, but if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And that's the reason the Apostle Paul speaks of the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, uh, he says, um, yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul is saying it's absolutely inevitable that I preach the gospel because the word is heavy and it burns in our hearts and it has to be preached. The very nature of the gospel is that it is an announcement. So what you're holding in your heart is an announcement. That's the nature of it. And therefore, it needs to be announced. So it's unnatural to the gospel to hold it in. You ever felt that way? Of course you do. That's the reason Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm under obligation to Greeks and non-Greeks. Why was he under obligation? They, he didn't owe them anything. Oh, yes, he did. Because God made him owe them because God gave Paul a message that belongs to them. Therefore, he owed, Paul owes the Greeks and the non-Greeks because he's got a message that God intends for them to give to them. So now you owe it to them. Because you're holding something that God means to go to them. It's not yours. It's theirs. So give it to them. That's the nature of the gospel itself. That's the reason it's a burden. Because you receive it. It saves your eternal life. And it is also an announcement to other people. And it is the very word of God. That's the reason it's a burden. It's also a burden because it contradicts human nature. And that's the reason sometimes we choose to let it stay in our hearts and just burn a hole, give us an ulcer, rather than to, to announce it and get our faces beat in. Take your choice. It's a burden. Because people don't always believe it. And sometimes they not only don't believe it, they hate it. And they hate the one who sends the message. Ever notice that? It's a little dicey out there. And so the gospel is a burden. The word of God, the oracle is a burden because it's the word of God, because its very nature is to be announced. And because when we announce it, we get into a whole bunch of trouble with the world. And so it was with Malachi. And so it's been with anybody who announces the gospel. You know, if you read, if you read uh, probably the greatest evangelist in the history of the English-speaking language, the Methodist George Whitfield, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, here, Whitfield is preaching right in the sort of pre-revolutionary days in America. Travels the ocean 13 times. And he didn't take uh, American Airlines. That, that was a long, arduous trip. 13 times across the ocean. 
back and forth. Preaching, raising money for the orphans in Georgia, uh, and preaching all up and down the coast during the same period that Jonathan Edwards was preaching in New England, uh, in, in uh, Massachusetts, in his parish. And uh, Whitfield went all over England, uh, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, just this remarkable evangelist preaching sometimes to crowds of 40 and 50,000. Benjamin Franklin became his friend. Franklin, of course, was a publisher, you know, a newspaper man in Philadelphia. And he was very interested in these things because it was making such a public spectacle, not because he believed the gospel. In fact, Whitfield wrote him letters, stayed in his home and wrote him letters and pled with him to trust in Christ, which, as far as we know, Franklin never did. But Franklin was very fascinated with Whitfield and knew that he was a real McCoy and had great respect for him. Franklin one day, and Whitfield was preaching in Philadelphia, Franklin marked it off. He walked it off to see how big the crowds were, and they were not overestimated. Franklin said, truly, there, there were 30, 40, 50,000 people there, and Franklin measured off how far away from Whitfield you could actually hear him. These were in the days before public address systems. And Franklin said it was fully one mile. <laughs> they said Whitfield had a voice like an organ. And he would just announce the gospel. And he would be speaking to some of the most hardened people you ever met in your life. The stories of his going through the coal mines in the Bristol area and what they called the Kingswood Colliers, who were coal mines or colliers in very hardened part of England. They didn't particularly appreciate people telling them they were sinners, which Whitfield would spend about 30 minutes doing before he told them about the gospel. And sometimes you wondered if Whitfield was going to survive. And as a matter of fact, he used to, one of the things Whitfield used to love to do was to take his wig off and show his big bald head with big scars down his head where people had thrown things at him. Uh, but Whitfield was known to say on one occasion, you can throw your brick bats at me, you can throw your rocks at me. But one thing I don't want to do is to go to heaven without you. That was the passion of his heart because he had a burden. He had the word of the Lord. Its nature was to be announced. And it was a burden to Whitfield because sinners didn't want to receive it. Because with the gospel comes a judgment on your own natural self, your flesh. There's a judgment there. And before you receive the gospel, before you really know the love of Christ, you don't want any judgment on you. Last thing you want is condemnation. And our society has become quite expert at shielding ourselves from all, anything that would suggest condemnation. Therefore, we rarely get the gospel because the gospel condemns your flesh. Your natural inclinations, your natural heart, it condemns it. It's a burden to preach that kind of stuff. And Whitfield almost died over it. But they would, in his journals, he'll tell these stories about these Kingswood, Kingswood colliers who will come streaming out of the coal mines with their blackened faces from the coal to hear Whitfield preach. And Whitfield reports the first evidence of God working in their hearts were the white streams being created on their faces by the tears coming down their faces. They heard of the love of Jesus Christ. Broken by the love of God. Not broken by someone throwing them in jail or beating them like they usually did, but someone broken by the love of God. And that's exactly what Malachi sets out to do with us this morning. is to break us, every single one of us, not by someone condemning us, although we, our flesh is condemned by the gospel, but by someone telling us of the love of Almighty God for wicked sinners like ourselves and the Kingswood Colliers. So Whitfield's a good example of someone who goes into a hardened area around the English-speaking world to convey the gospel, even at the risk of his own life. And that's a picture of what every prophet, every follower of Jesus Christ, the great prophet, has to do. Walk in his steps and take the abuse that comes with it. The word of God is a burden. Consider the circumstances in Malachi's day. Probably 458, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were lethargic in worship. And we'll pick this up in chapter 1. They were apathetic about God's word. We'll pick that up in chapter 2. The priests were apathetic. They just said, heck with this. I'm going to get a real job. And they did. They went out and got a real job. So nobody was in church teaching anymore. No, no amen Bible study in, in Jerusalem. They were apathetic about it. Unfaithful in sex and marriage. We'll pick that up in chapter 2. Relativistic in their morals. Good was evil and evil was good. 
It's exactly what's going on today. People are actually calling something that's evil. They're calling it good. Over and over again. We'll pick up some of those things because that's exactly what was happening in Israel. And they were stingy in their giving. That's the one you don't want to miss. And they were secular. They were secular in their thinking. That is, they thought that what you see is all you get. So go around once, get, go for the gusto. That's exactly the way they were thinking. They had no sense of judgment. I noticed on the front page of the USA Today this morning, uh, this story about San Francisco. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time, they say. It's going to be devastated. It's not if, it's when. Well, the folks in Jerusalem had no sense of God's judgment that was coming uh, because they had waited long enough, as we'll see. And you can consider the circumstances in our own day. What are the circumstances in our day? Go right through that list. That's what the circumstances are in our own day. That's the reason Malachi is so crucial for us today. So the first thing is, if we're to have a covenant relationship with God, if we're to have a a real binding relationship with Him that's secure and meaningful and uh, a real partnership, it's going to begin with an oracle from Him which is the word of the Lord and a burden in Malachi's day and ours. Now, secondly, when we look at verse 2, the very first word, very first words, we get this, that covenant obedience to the oracle of God requires a knowledge of his love for us. I have loved you, says the Lord. So if we are to walk meaningfully with God, he says, walk with me. Walk right next to me. Be in partnership with me. Be my friend. Be on the same team. Be about the same business. If we're to do that, there is no way it's going to happen until we know that He loves us, that He forgives us, that He values us, that He won't let us go, that He's not an Indian giver. No slight against the Indians. Uh, That He won't take it back. We've got to know that. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to function. We're way too fearful for that. But he says, I have loved you. That sense of I have loved you means I loved you in the past in a way that's continuing into the present and will continue into the future. I have loved you and I'm continuing to love you. That's what he's saying. Now, this is an old theme. You can pick it up in Deuteronomy. In chapter 4, verse 37, here's here's what the, the Lord says. He says, because he, or here's what the, uh, Moses says to the Israelites, because he, God, loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you the nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. So God is going to replace stronger nations and greater people with you. you. Say, why would he do that? I don't know. Except that he loves you. You say, why does he love me? I don't know. There's no explanation. It's a mystery. That's the reason that the hymn writer says, amazing grace. I don't know. It's amazing. It makes no sense. If he gave you a reason for his love for you, whatever that reason is within you, you'd screw it up. If there was any reason in you that he loved you, you'd screw it up by tomorrow. And you'd do it sooner, the sooner you knew exactly why it was he loved you. Because you're screwed up. We're all screwed up. We have a death wish almost. If there was any reason within us why he loved us, we'd be without hope because we'd mess it up. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you in infinite regression. There's only one reason He loves you. It's within Him. And I don't know what that is. It's called grace. And what is the motive for grace? I suppose you could go one step higher and say, it's to glorify His own being. Grace, that is to love somebody who not only doesn't deserve it, but who is your enemy. Who has set Himself against you. To love a person like that is the greatest display of love that there could possibly be. And so God glorifies himself by loving us with no reason at all, except that he loves us. That's his love. 
There's no reason for it in this life, in us. And that means you can be secure in His love because you can't screw that up. Because you can't get your hands on His heart. You can't change His heart. His heart is His heart. And He just loves you. You know how your mother loves you. Your mother will defend you when everybody else knows you're a crook. And she'll be still standing up there giving great speeches about you. And I don't know why. It's just a mother's love. Well, His love is greater than that. And He'll defend you. Chapter 7, verse 7, uh, also gives this same sort of same theme. Uh, Moses says to the Israelites, once again, Moses is just teaching the people about God's love. What it means to go through the wilderness knowing that you're special. And he says to them, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's saying it wasn't because you were great or numerous or impressive or rich or successful or good looking. It wasn't any of that. In fact, it's kind of the opposite of that. You were the fewest of all people. You were the poorest of all the nations. You look pretty pitiful. And so he will exalt the power of God's love to take the most pitiful people. Let's save them, says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the angels go, really? Why would you want to do that? Because we love. God loves sinners. Do you understand? He loves them. And I'm glad. Chapter 10 says somewhat the same thing. Verse 15. Uh, This is drummed into the heads of the Israelites. I'm not sure they ever quite got it. I'm not sure we get it. And in verse 14, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. So God owns everything. Yet, verse 15, the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Don't rebel against them anymore. He loves you because He loves you because He loves you. Give up on the other gods. They don't treat you that way. Everybody else is manipulative. And besides that, those gods don't even exist. But this God loves sinners. I love a God who loves sinners. Because I'd be a sinner. (laughs) I've always said to people, I preach grace in my ministry for self-protection. Now, Paul says the same thing in Romans 12. You know the familiar verse. He said, Therefore I plead with you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. And this is just your reasonable or spiritual worship, he says. It's only reasonable if you've got these mercies, loved in spite of yourselves, that you would give your whole self to Him in worship and service. It only makes sense if He's loved you like that. And you find the same sort of thing You remember in Ephesians, when we studied Ephesians, first three chapters are doctrinal that had to do with our calling. The Father chose us from before all time. The the, the Lord uh, Jesus spilt His blood for us. The Holy Spirit sealed us. This is all in Ephesians 1, if you remember your Amen Bible study years ago. Get to chapter 4 and He says, Now I urge you in view of this calling to walk with the Lord. What is the calling He's talking about? This heavy, weighty calling of the triune God Choosing us, redeeming us by His blood, and sealing us with His presence. So we live out the covenant life because of what He's done for us and what He thinks of us and the relationship He's built with us. He built the relationship. We didn't build it. And we are just simply responding with our lives to the covenant relationship. That's covenant life. Being in the covenant and knowing why we're in it because of His inestimable love for us. Now, this just makes common sense from common experience. Take, let me show you this whole triangle. And in any relationship, when it's going well, you're experiencing three things in that relationship. You feel valued, you've been included, and you're empowered. Think about those of you who had really wonderful fathers, human fathers. Why are they so wonderful? Because they thought you were great, even when everybody else would give up on you. They included you in their lives. And you knew you belonged to that family as a cherished member because you were included in it. You were not left out. You were not marginalized. You were included. And you were empowered. Son, 
I want you to take this responsibility. Yes, sir, Dad. Your dad trusted you. He empowered you. He gave you freedom to make decisions. And if he was really a good father when you were a teenager, you could tell he was already trying to make an adult out of you. He wasn't trying to hold you back. He was trying to give you power. He was letting you make some decisions, and he was letting you make mistakes. If you had a really good father, your dad was letting you make some mistakes. He was not trying to control you through your teenage years so you wouldn't embarrass him in public. He was, he was on your side to become an adult. He was continually trying to empower you. And when you became an adult, he included you in his thinking about his own estate. And he, he talked to you about the family business. And he trusted you with, his, with the knowledge of his business. You were included and you were empowered. You became a team member. If you enjoy your work, I'll tell you why. It's probably those three things. If people enjoy working for you, I'll tell you why. Probably those three things. If your kids are angry, it's because of one or more of those three things, probably. If you've got an angry teenager... You could probably track it down to one of those three things, or they're usually all involved. They're feeling a lack of one or more of those things. If you have a marriage that's really healthy, both of you are feeling these things in the relationship. I mean, uh, you know, psychologists have helped us a lot to understand these things, and industrial psychologists on work relationships, but it all comes right out of the Bible, because that's what God has done for us. But this is the way it works. Let me give you a contemporary application of this. This whole issue of illegal immigrants in our country, to me, is a very crucial Christian biblical issue. We think we've got about 12 million illegal immigrants. We've got a lot of them here in Memphis. And there's several ways you can go with this. Some are saying that, you know, let's get the borders cleared up and let's make these people go back home. They shouldn't be here. Or let's treat them in such a way they wish they were home. And maybe they'll go back on their own. That's the extreme on one side. The other is, listen, let's just forget the whole thing. It doesn't matter. Let's just be nice to people. Well, I do believe there are legitimate immigration issues, and I believe those need to be dealt with. I also believe we haven't been dealing with it very well for a number of years. And we have a lot of illegal immigrants because we've participated in this. We have not had responsible immigration policy, and we've not implemented, implemented the policy we've got. So these people are here uh, in some part because of us. We participated in this. So now, let's live up to our responsibilities. And let's think about these three things. We're getting ready to make one of the biggest mistakes we can make in the 21st century in this country. We made a huge mistake in the 17th, 18th, and 19th, and 20th centuries with African Americans. They didn't have those three things. Whenever you don't have those three things, you get a very frustrated human being. You know why? Because we were made for those three things. We were created to have those three things. We were redeemed to have those three things. And when we take that away from each other, we dehumanize each other. And that's just about what we're getting ready to do with the illegal immigrants in this country. I'm all for immigration control. I'm all for good policies. But when we let the walls down ourselves and let them in, they need to have access to power. They need to be told that they're welcomed. They need to be cherished as human beings. And some of us in this room need to be thinking about how we are going to minister to those who are in our own community. Some of you may know Jose Valasquez, who is the executive director for Latinos in Memphis. And he'll tell you that the 2000 census shows 36,000 Hispanics in our area. But he says to me, we're very aware of the crime rates, that is, crimes committed against certain ethnic groups. And he says, if there are only 36,000 of us, we must be the only ones in the city against whom crimes are being committed. He says, 70% of the people I deal with did not register in the 2000 census. So we, we've got to have somewhere near 100,000 Hispanics in Memphis, most of them illegal. A lot of them are in our high schools around here. You go to Kingsbury High School, full of Spanish-speaking kids who are illegal immigrants who don't have the rights of citizenship. So what do they do when you're not empowered, you're not included, you're not valued? You know exactly what you do. You get into gangs to get inclusion and value and power. That's what you get in a gang. Because you're not getting it at home, you're not getting it at school, and you're not getting it from folks like us. And they're gangs. Jose goes over and asks to meet with the gang members. 
They'll hardly even talk to him. But finally, they'll kind of gather around. He talks to him. And one of them says, you know, I'd, I like to operate on cars. Jose says, I'm going to find you a job this summer. He says, yeah, sure. Jose walks up and down Covington Pike, finds a dealership that will take a Hispanic kid who's a gang leader. They have a Hispanic foreman over there. And they take him. Jose comes back the next day to Kingsbury High School. They call in that gang leader kid. He thinks he's being called in because he's in trouble. Goes to the principal's office, and there's Jose. And he's amazed because people make promises to them all the time and don't keep them because they had no rights. And Jose tells him he's got a job for the summer. The kid takes the job. He finishes high school. Cannot go to college because he's not a citizen. Folks, this has to be dealt with. We're Christians, some of you in this room. If we are, if we're followers of Christ, we're the ones who have to be sure that if we've been loved, we understand what love and justice and mercy is. And justice is retributive justice. Justice has a hard edge to it at times. It is the power of the sword. But justice, as we've seen throughout the Minor Prophets, is also mercy. And it's inclusion. It's dealing with people as they should be dealt with. So there's a way to do this. A way to do it right. And I believe we need to be the advocates for it because we believe in love. We've been dealt with this way. We were the aliens, says Paul. We were the immigrants. We were not only illegal, we were immoral, and we were under the wrath of God. And He provided for us. We've got to figure out a way that we express this. So you'll find this common experience in social groups, and you'll find it in individual lives. But what you'll find most gloriously is that God knows this from eternity. The Trinity treat each other this way. And they treat us this way. We've got to treat other people this way in covenant life. Now, thirdly, if you look at verse 2b, he says, But you ask, how have you loved us? And this suggests disobedience to the covenant stems from unbelief in God's love for us. When you're disobedient, when your marriage is falling apart, when you're not being a very good father or husband, when you're not being a very good leader in your workplace, when you're not being a very good citizen, when I'm using foul language or when I'm doing this, that, or the other, when I'm thinking bad thoughts, what's my basic problem? I don't believe in the love of God. Look at this. How have you loved us? <laughs> Look at these people. <laughs> they got taken to Babylon because they deserved it. God puts it on the head of a pagan king to not only let them return to Jerusalem, but to pay for it. How have you loved this lately? These people who were slaves in Egypt and God divided the Red Sea. How have you loved this? A God who sent His own Son. His Son! To take on human flesh and be nailed to a tree naked. How have you loved me? It's absolutely insane. But that's how bad we are. We're just like them. How have you loved us? And here's the reason we ask. Because we misinterpret waiting to mean abandonment. Consider Israel's circumstances. The temple was rebuilt, but there's nothing in the Bible that says the glory returned. We don't have any record of the Shekinah glory coming like it did in the first temple. And it seems as though there was a restlessness with that second temple. Joshua and Zerubbabel had died. I thought they were the Messiah. I thought Joshua and Zerubbabel, I thought this was the end times. I thought this was it. I thought that when we had all the problems in Iraq and all the oil crisis in the Mideast, I thought this was it. And you didn't come, Lord. So I guess you're not coming. No miracles since Elijah and Elisha. It been over 400 years since they'd had miracles in Israel. They felt abandoned. Unenthusiastic clergy. Well, I guess if the clergy don't care, why should I care? Breakdown of families. Look at this. We're a mess, they were saying. Our society is falling apart. And it was. Messiah had not yet come. But consider Second Peter 3, 8 through 10. With the Lord, a thousand years is but a day. Remember, waiting is not being abandoned. Waiting is not being abandoned. We are people who are saved in hope. And if we already have what we hope for, then we're not hoping any longer, says Paul. We're saved in hope. That's the very nature of covenant life. We live it out in hope because we know about the future. Sometimes we misinterpret discipline to mean rejection. Look at what was going on in their time. They had poverty and foreign oppression. Their sacrifices were being rejected on the altar. Their crops were failing. The society was unjust. And the writer of Hebrews says, 
Look, if you're not being disciplined by the father, you're an illegitimate child. You're a bastard. So we are disciplined by our father so that we may enjoy a fruit of peace and righteousness in our lives. And he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 12, look at Jacob and Esau to come to point here. Esau didn't have hope. He, he sold the rights to his inheritance for a bowl of soup. He didn't have hope. He didn't believe in the significance of his legacy. And sometimes people who are going by the name of Christ don't believe in the significance of their legacy. And they'll sell it away for a sex act. What is this? It is disobedience stemming from unbelief in God's love for us. Fourthly, God's love is unquestionable. When he says in 2C, he answers this and he says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Let me tell you something about my love. It's unmerited. I love you because I love you because I love you. You want to know how I've loved you lately? Just look at yourself. Ask your wife how easy it is to love you. And I have loved you without wavering one moment. In your worst moments, your worst moments, I didn't love you any less. In fact, an argument could be made, I loved you more. How have I loved you? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Which is to say, Esau was older than Jacob. He came out of the womb first. They were twins, but Esau had the rights. Don't you realize the Edomites just the southeast of you are the ones who by birth had the right to the blessing and I gave it to you? Don't you realize there are peoples in this world that are smarter than you are, that are more noble than you are, that have had cultures that are more sophisticated and distinguished than you are, and I've chosen you, the church of Jesus Christ? Are you not their brother, and yet I chose you? Do you have no sense of how you compare to the rest of humanity? Do you think maybe you're my people because you're so special by nature? Have you forgotten who you are? Paul goes on to say, in, in, in First Corinthians, not many of you were noble, not many of you were wise, not many of you were strong. I chose the weak so that I could make nothing out of the power of this world. Have you forgotten this? He was the firstborn. He's actually better than Jacob. Esau was a man's man. He liked to go out and hunt and fish, bring the food in. Esau had far more integrity than Jacob had. Jacob was the deceiver. Did you not realize history? Did you not listen to Moses? He told you about who your forefathers were. These rascals? Esau is a far better man than you. And I go around the world, I meet people all the time of other religions that are better people than I am. And I meet them here in Memphis. They're better people than I am. By nature. Don't you remember who your brother was that's been rejected? And Paul makes an argument in Romans 9. We won't take the time to do this morning. But the argument in Romans 9 is, don't you understand that your election, your appointment from all eternity, has nothing to do with what you did? Which is good news, but it also absolutely disqualifies all boasting. It has nothing to do with merits because Paul says he chose Jacob before they had done anything good or bad, before they were born, before they were even in the womb of their mother. So the election has nothing to do with your performance. It's all grace. And then secondly, his love is unimpeachable. Yet I have loved Jacob. Look, it's no big deal to try to understand why he hated Esau. If you understand human sinful nature, it's no mystery why God would hate all of us. That's perfectly understandable. We don't sing songs that say amazing justice. It's not amazing. It's just reasonable. What's amazing is not that he hated Esau. What's amazing is that he loved that scoundrel Jacob. And we've forgotten what's amazing. And all we talk about is how could God send anybody to hell? The question is, how could he take any of these people to heaven? So it's unimpeachable. I have loved a scoundrel. Consider the contrast with Esau's past. I've turned his mountains into a wasteland, left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Consider the contrast with Esau's future. Hey, Esau may say, I'm going to rebuild. They may be great American optimists. Nothing can keep us down. Hurricanes, earthquakes, invasions, 911. Nothing can stop us. But I'm bringing them down, says the Lord. They can boast all they want to. But I'll bring them down. Because they are always under the wrath of God. Gentlemen, 
This is what the Bible says about the natural human being. They are under the wrath of God. This is not good news. This is bad news. But it's reality. You look at Ephesians 1 and we, uh, Ephesians 2 and you'll find that before we came into Christ, the wrath of God was resting upon us. When you read that sweet verse, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. It goes on to say that He did not come to condemn the world. Why? The world was condemned already. Do you not understand? This world is under condemnation. It's been already condemned. Like a building is condemned by the government. It's coming down soon. It's condemned. Nobody can live in it. This world has been condemned. And that's not amazing. That's only reasonable based on the behavior of this world. What's amazing, truly amazing, is that God loved Jacob out of this condemned world. And He loved you out of this condemned world. That's truly amazing. His love is unstoppable. Verse 1-5, He says, you will see it with your own eyes. Just like Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And He says, I shall see it in my flesh. The resurrected Lord. You will see Him with your own eyes. Live in hope, in covenant life. He loved you in the past. He loves you now. And He's bringing this love to completion. And you will ultimately glorify God because of it. And the great goal of His love in your life is that just as the grace of God is being displayed before the angels and all the heavenly hosts as they see the spiritual sons of Jacob raised up among a condemned populace, one day, these people who are being redeemed and living in covenant life in hope will be presented before the living God in holy array. And the angels will be tempted, as we find in Revelation, to bow down and worship the sons of Jacob because they will be so brilliant in their radiance. That is you if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. We are the ones who are brought into the covenant through His blood. And we have a sealed relationship so that one day you will see the Lord and you will see the glory of the Lord. And you will be the, re- the reflection of the glory of the Lord. And you will say, just as he says here, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel as all the nations of the world stream into the holy city of Jerusalem. That's the great hope of the Christian. And before he ever starts with his complaints about our screwed up marriages, our screwed up relationships, our poor financial management, our neglect of the Word of God, our stinking worship, all this stuff we're going to have to deal with. Before he ever gets started there, he says, don't start tampering with your ethical life until you deal with your relationship with God and realize He loves you. Not because of anything in you. Just because He loves you, because He loves you, because He loves you. Accept it. And when you accept that through Jesus Christ, now you can live in covenant life with Him. Let's pray. Father, We thank You for Your love. It is beyond all measure. It is absolutely unstoppable, relentless, bringing us to that last day when You shower Your love upon us in unbelievable manner. And we pray that today You'll help us to live in covenant faithfulness because we know we've been loved by a living God. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. God bless you all.